First Samuel chapter 13, we'll be starting in verse 1. Having finished chapter 12, we're making our way all the way through the book of First Samuel, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. Now, Heavenly Father, we bow our hearts before you and ask for your blessing. Holy Spirit, show us Jesus and show us these truths that can change our lives, even tonight. We can have an epiphany and, and have truth uh, grab us and, and change our lives just because we're listening to your spirit. So touch us and make us able, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All righty. Well, Saul is now Israel's first king. 500 years of judges is now over. So we, we have officially laid uh, the, the era of the judges aside for the new uh, era of the monarchy. Uh, the last judge, Samuel, to bring you up to speed and give you some context, uh, the last judge, Samuel, has just had his retirement service last chapter. And his farewell speech was the subject of that chapter. And in that speech, as you'll recall, he reiterated that Israel has done a really dumb thing on insisting on a human monarchy to have a king over them instead of the Lord God being their king as he had been for some 500 years uh, they had rejected the Lord, and God had acquiesced, and, and, and there's something called his permissive will, that though it wasn't really the right thing to do, he allowed it because it fit into his sovereign plan. And so he's allowed them to have their human king, and uh, whenever a believer trusts more in people or things than the living God, we've done the same dumb thing. And so it's not just Israel that makes mistakes like that. Uh, we are prone to wander in the same sorts of ways. Now, the good news that we have learned is that in that farewell speech that said that they had done this very dumb thing, that they also had some really good news that though God's people can fumble the ball, uh, God still wants them to get up and to finish the game and to win. And uh, he is not done with them. You'll remember in the speech, uh, Samuel said, now here's the king that you've chosen, uh, the one you've asked for, for see the Lord has set a king over you. Now, if you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and don't rebel against his commands, and if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord, good. And so, in other words, yes, a very bad move, but it didn't mean the end of God's favor and blessing and goodness. Serve God today, where you're at, no matter what kinds of mistakes that you have made in the past. Uh, Proverbs chapter 24 and verse 16 says this. The Living Bible translates it this way. The godly may trip seven times, but they will get up again and again. He says, fear the Lord, serve him, obey his word, don't rebel, follow him. And even though you've done this really dumb thing, you're going to be blessed. And so we're off. Kings, king Saul's first act as king, as you will recall, was very positive. 
Uh, he's led Israel to a decisive victory uh, over the menacing armies of the Ammonites, right? So uh, here in chapter 13, 14, and 15, unfortunately, we see that that one victory was his last real victory. It's downhill for handsome Saul from here on out. Chapters 13 through 15 highlight Saul's decline and demise, which will continue until the end of this whole book in chapter 28. And so starting in just a few chapters from now, uh, we'll see in chapter 16, David appears. We'll see David rising and King Saul falling. And their two lives will be intertwined. And as David trusts and obeys, he is blessed and established. And King Saul will distrust and disobey, and his rule will be taken from him. And we're going to see that. Now, in this chapter, uh, it'll be good to always be underlining um, Saul's missteps because we want to make sure that we don't make the same mistakes as King Saul. Reading from 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 1 through 4. Saul was 30 years old when he became king, and he reigned over Israel 42 years. Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel. 2,000 were with him at Michmash and in the hill country of Bethel, and 1,000 were with Jonathan at Gebeah. In Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. Jonathan attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba, and the Philistines heard about it. Then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, Let the Hebrews hear. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost, and now Israel has become a stench to the Philistines, and the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. All right, let's pause there. Roman numeral number one, if you're taking notes, taking the credit. First misstep, number one, pride. Now, what took down the chief angel in heaven named Lucifer, which means light bearer, what made the light bearer a very dark devil was pride. And pride will take down the chief angel in heaven as it will take down a king or a peasant alike. Proverbs 16, verse 18. Pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. It's something that we all know and say in the world says that same proverb. Everybody in the world knows that proverb. Pride comes before a fall. Proverbs 29 and verse 23. Interesting. A man's pride brings him low, but a man of lowly spirit gains honor. It's so ironic that the very thing that the proud person wants is to be elevated. But the Proverbs say a man's pride will bring him low. And now we're going to see him, uh, uh, Saul, decline from his high honor of being a king and to have that taken away uh, and mostly because of self-centered self-ambitious pride 
So right away, what's going on here? We see that Israel has its first standing army. So prior to this point, Israel just had a volunteer militia, right? Through the periods of the judges, there was no uh, draft. Uh, the Lord would stir the hearts of the men to volunteer, and, and they didn't have a standing professional army until now because they have a king. And you'll remember they were chanting, we want a king, we want a king. And Samuel stood up and he said, oh, you want a king? Let me tell you what that king is going to take from you. And number one, remember back in chapter 8 and verse 11, he said, this is what the king who will reign over you will do. He will take your sons and make them serve him with his chariots and horses, and they'll run in front of him and fight, and, and you're, you're going to lose your boys. And not only that, you're going to lose your girls too, because he would conscript them as well to do uh, things in the palace. And so uh, we see that fulfilled already. It's only been in office, what, uh, a year or two at the most at this time. And so you want a king, he's going to take your sons. And now there's a small army, and nobody really knows why he sent everybody home, and he just wants 3,000. Uh, just two chapters ago, there were 300,000 men who volunteered to save Gilead there in chapter 11. So for some reason, uh, Saul just chooses 3,000. 2,000 troops are with him, and 1,000 troops are with his son, Jonathan, 15 miles away. All right, now this is the first mention of Jonathan in the Bible, who is a Bible hero. He is a very well-loved character, and uh, this is the first time we meet him. We will be meeting him again. Uh, at this time, the Philistines had subjugated Israel. They were occupying them in their own land. They were kind of ruling the Israelites, and they had military outposts throughout Israel to keep the Jews in check. So as long as Israel remained in their proper place, subjected to the Philistines who were ruling over them in their own God-given land, as long as they uh, kept their pathetic, weak sauce place, then there was no trouble, you know? But, and they had these little garrisons or these little outposts there. Well, Jonathan, in verse 3, leads his thousand men in an attack on one of these outposts. In, in essence, Jonathan is saying this. This is our land. What are you doing here? Uh, you, you Philistines don't belong. You are uncovenanted people. Uh, you are oppressing us and we'll take it no more. You're the enemy. You'll have to go. And he stirs up the hornet's nest by attacking and overcoming this Philistine outpost. And then your verse tells you the Philistines hear about this. Well, this essentially will start the war for Israel's liberation from the Philistines, a war that won't be um, completely fulfilled until David and long into David's reign. That's what verse 4 says. Jonathan's attack has uh, now caused the Philistines uh, to hate them because it says, and the idiom is that the Israelites have become a stench in the nostrils of the Philistines. And all of that means is now, instead of getting along in their compromised state, yes, they had to bow low to the Philistines, but at least they were fine. They weren't attacked. Well, now they've stirred it up, and now the Philistines want to get rid of them. 
That's essentially what that verse means, verse 4. Interesting to me, and a good spiritual application for you and for me, as long as the Israelites stayed in their weak place, they thought they were great guys. But as soon as they fought back for the Lord and God's cause and wanted to stand up and say, this is mine, God has given this to me, and I will receive it as my own inheritance. I will live out my God-given rights. As soon as they said they will do that, then they become the enemy and the Philistines are bent on destroying them. The same is true with your spiritual enemy and mine. We wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, powers, and rulers of darkness in heavenly places, Ephesians chapter 6. And they do not mind so much when we mind them. When we are no threat, when you're not opening your mouth about the gospel, when you're not living right, when you're totally compromised and you're being a defeated Christian, why attack you? You're almost working for them. You're an advertisement that says, look, uh, you know, you're calling yourself a Christian, but look at this weak life. And so, of course, they don't stir up any trouble. Pastor David Guzik if peace with the devil is more important to you than victory in the Lord, you will often be defeated and subjugated. Now, subjugated just means, obviously, under enemy control. I had a youth pastor once who would always say, when the evil one launches his attack and his fiery arrows fly against you, count it as a compliment. He sees you as a threat. So if you plan on defying the devil, put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against his schemes, live as a spirit-filled Christian and you'll be fine. I mean, we're not saying, oh no, you, you, if you obey God and embrace the promises of God and you're shining uh, your light in this dark world and become a threat to the kingdom of darkness, which we are and will be when we do things like that, uh, we're not implying that now you're going to have to suffer because you're going to engage the evil one. No, walk as a Christian and God's, God will protect you. Faith will shield you. The armor of God, the helmet of salvation, the mind of Christ, the breastplate of being right with God is a shield. Your own faith, the shield that can extinguish all the flaming arrows. You know, down to the feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, which is King James for meaning you've got the war sandals on. You're going to do damage. And so so it, it, it's, I'm not saying, uh, yeah, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> Did you notice the pride? We haven't gotten to his pride yet. It's sneaky. It's hidden in verse 4. I wonder if you caught it. It's subtle, like all of Saul's sins here at the beginning. One commentator said this, Attention, all believers. Look and see King Saul destroy his life, not through huge and hideous sins, but by little ones. Tiny compromises. So subtle you can barely see them in the text. 
Some of you still don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, well, let me show you. So the hornet's nest, Philistine army is stirred up. Saul realizes, hey, we're going to need more than a couple thousand guys. He sounds the alarm. He blows the trumpet. And here's the declaration, verse 4. Let the Hebrews hear Saul's attack the Philistine outpost. Two problems, Saul, and they're very serious. Number one, that's a lie. You didn't attack anyone. Blow the trumpet and let the whole world know that King Saul has had the courage to attack one of the outposts there. No, you didn't. It's a lie. Number two, it's pride that motivates the lie. He wants the credit. He wants the glory. He wants the people's admiration. And a lie is an easy way to get what he wants. And you know what he would say if he was here now, you know, you know what? It was just stretching the truth a little bit. I was the commander in chief. It's my army. We attacked. So it wasn't me personally. So I just kind of stretched it a little bit. You got a problem with that? Yeah, we do. <laughs> it's called lying. And uh, God doesn't like it. James chapter 3 and verse 16, you'll recall from our study there. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder in every evil practice. So selfish ambition and pride, this insecurity that just thirsts for applause and the praise of men rather than the praise of God. Uh, that is like the Trojan horse that comes in and the door opens up and all these other sins come down of lying and stealing and all of these other things that always accompany selfish ambition. It says where you find that, you find every evil practice. So watch out for when you get it all about yourself and you start to envy and uh, live for me, myself, and I. Verses 5 through 9. The Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash, east of Beth Avon. When the men of Israel saw that their situation was critical and that their army was hard pressed, they hid in caves, thickets, among the rocks and in pits and in cisterns. Those are like empty wells. Some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan. They're jumping in the Jordan and swimming to the land of Gad across into Gilead. Saul remained at Gilgal and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. He waited uh, seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel didn't come to Gilgal and Saul's men began to scatter so he said bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings and Saul offered up the burnt offering oh my word <laughs> not good Roman numeral number two quaking with fear now here's a guy who uh, fear and insecurity drives him rather than love and faith leading him the Israelite soldiers are obviously outnumbered and they're totally outgunned, as we see here. So the army gives way to fear and insecurity, just like their leader. They're following him. And it's a very kind of a lot of poetic justice here. Wasn't a king 
supposed to solve this very problem? We need a king to fight our battles and take away all this fear. We need somebody to so we can look at and say, that's our king, and there's the army, and he's going to fix the problem. But so often, what we think the things that will uh, come and, and, and fix our problems, they don't. And they mess us up even uh, worse. A nice reality is driven home by this verse here. They still need God's help every bit as much as before they had their king. Uh, So where's Saul's confidence, all right? Because like the other guys, he's quaking with fear. And and a second misstep, I would say, would be the lack of faith. Um, God didn't have a problem with Egypt's chariots. You remember when he parted the Red Sea and then he lured them into the dry uh, uh, seabed there and he caused the, the chariot wheels to fall off and then he covered them over with the Red Sea. He, de- he doesn't have problems like this, but Saul isn't walking by, by faith. He's walking by sight. And so is all of Israel here. And so it's hard to be confident when your heart is not right with God. You want to hide in an abandoned well instead of uh, facing with courage and fear and and faith rather and determination uh, the challenges before us. Um, I had a best friend back in my 20s, a Christian man. In fact, they they were a couple and they were best friends with Barb and I. And his name's Steve Ferranti. And Steve Ferranti was a police officer in San Jose. And he would tell me stories about what he would do because he would work the night shift. And he was telling me one day at our kitchen table about what he had done the night before. And he was in a back alley. And there was somebody back there, uh, a thief who just robbed somebody's house or a store. And he knew he was back there and he could hear him. And he had to go in to the alley looking for him and uncovering the garbage and looking behind things. And it was pitch black. And he's telling me the story. And I said, you do this all the time. How, how do you do that? I just wouldn't, that doesn't sound attractive to me to every night to live in that kind of fear. And he says, I'm not afraid. He said, and I said, why aren't you afraid? And he said, the line that has stuck with me for over 25 years Because right is with me. I'm on the side of right. So when I'm in the alley, he knows that he's wrong and that I'm there on the right side, that it's like the mayor is with me and the governor is with me and the president is with me and the country is with me and God is with me and truth is with me. And he knows that. And I know that. Therefore, I'm not afraid. This just was amazing. Now, Christian, when you're right with God, God is for you. Who could be against you? It's a wonderful thing to sense that you're right with God. It doesn't mean that you're perfect. It means that as far as you know, you're not rebelling. You're not uh, harboring some terrible sin. And you're not living duplicitously a double life. You're just walking with God. And he says, that's enough. And you have confidence to stand up and do what you thought you could never do. So uh, moving on, verse 6 says, uh, 
uh, their mass desertions going on. They're hiding in holes, as I said. And King Fabio has turned out to be a real dud, (laughs) right? So now, he's handsome and beautiful above beyond all men of Israel. Now, what what does he do now? Saul's been uh, commanded by Samuel to wait seven days. He says, now you're going to Go over here in this battle, and I want you to wait. This is a command from God. Wait seven days for me, the high priest, and I will come, and I will offer the sacrifice. Okay, that's what he's been told there. Verse 8, it's the seventh day. They're waiting. No sign of Samuel. The, the small remnant army that is left starts to scatter and Saul panics and he makes the mistake that all immature and misguided believers make. He takes matters into his own hands, misstep number three. So he says, okay, listen, guys are saying, hey, you know what? Samuel's not here. We're not going to get the sacrifice. We're not going to have God's favor. I'm out of here. And so they're deserting him more over. And he says, now, bring the animals to me. I'll do it. And the onlookers with big arched eyebrows, (laughs) really? The whole world knows for 500 years no one has ever dared to offer a sacrifice except Aaron and his relatives. Nobody, if you ever even got closer, you remember, uh, what was it? Aaron's boys, Nadab and Abihu. I can't believe I remember those names. (laughs) They tried to do things their own way. God just struck them dead. Do not mess around with God's altar in the Old Testament. You do things the right way. And King Saul says, oh, (laughs) where is he? Oh, I'm the king. I'm a mover and a shaker, and I want you all to come back and realize that you picked a guy who could get things done. Who needs a high priest when you got a king like me? And he flips back his hair. <laughs> and so he offers it. And now, now look, here's his logic. We need the Lord's favor. The sacrifice is the way to get it done. Samuel's not here. I'm the big man on campus. I'm going to do this. And so he slaughters the bull. He lays it out on the altar. He offers up a prayer. The smoke is rising. And he says, amen. And he opens his eyes. And the first thing he sees, just like in a bad dream, is Samuel. The first thing right after, and amen, done. Eyes open, Uh uh-oh, uh-oh, there's the high priest. You couldn't wait one more hour in the whole chapter. Your whole life would have been different. Impatience is the next misstep. In Patience. It's through patience, Hebrews tells us, that we inherit God's promises. Don't jump the gun. Don't jump the track. Wait on the promises of God. So Saul should have trusted. He should have obeyed. Instead, he took matters into his own hands. Lack of faith, lack of patience, lack of obedience, uh, Chap, uh, verses rather 10 through 15. 
Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrives and Saul went out to greet him. What have you done? asked Samuel. Saul replied, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you didn't come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash, I thought, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You acted foolishly, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Thus, then Samuel left Gilgal and went up to Gebeah in Benjamin, and Saul counted the men who were with him. They numbered about 600, Roman numeral number three, playing the fool. Now, there are a, a lot of missteps here in two paragraphs, several glaring character flaws, which only get bigger and more serious chapter by chapter because he won't deal with the obvious problems with his character and his relationship with God. He will not address them. And so they get worse. Misstep number four, deception, where I call it playing games or hypocrisy. So verse 10, Saul opens his eyes. He sees the legitimate high priest coming, Samuel. He knows he's blown it, but he goes out pretending, faking innocence, greeting Samuel cordially. Hey, brother Samuel, what's up, man? You know, double pound, you know, whatever. <laughs> Come on, he's going to high five him. He greets him. He just plays poker face. Hey, yeah, what have you been doing? Oh, I'm just offering the burn offering, just like a high priest. No, he comes out to greet him. You know what's worse? In the Hebrew, it, it, the word greet means to bless. You know what he's coming out to do? He's saying, hey, I'm the high priest. Now I'm going to bless you as a high priest would because I'm king and priest. I come out to greet and bless you. Hello, bro. Oh, wow. This guy's lost. So um, verse 11, uh, the Holy Spirit through Samuel uh, gives Saul a chance to come clean and confess and repent. I want you to hear this tonight, all of our hearts. Uh, he says, what have you done? Opportunity, invitation to confess and repent and get right. There's no pronouncement of judgment. There's no destiny already sealed. He says, what have you done? And the Holy Spirit is working. He's saying, come on, man, say the words. Get on the same page with God. Misstep number five, though, he makes excuses instead of taking responsibility. That's a big misstep. Verses 11 through 12. I did what I did. He says, what have you done? Tone face everything. And the guy, what does he want to do? He just makes excuses. Well, number one, the army was deserting me. The men were being cowards. The soldiers wimped out. So, number one, it's them. Number two, excuse me, but you weren't here on time. Number two is you. 
So between them and you, what was I supposed to do? That sounded like a little song. <laughs> no. Uh, he said, somebody had to take control. And then I love this number three. When you didn't come at the appointed time, I was, verse 12, compelled. Oh, do you see? Even there to say, you know what? I, I just... I just felt compelled. That puts you in the passive mode. You didn't do it. I felt compelled. Another force. You know what he's implying? He's implying that the Holy Spirit compelled him to do it. So it's the army. It's Samuel's tardiness. And it's the Lord's Spirit compelling him. That's bad. That's very bad. <laughs> you know, in, 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 uh, we're not ruled by our feelings. And our feelings are subject to our wills. So none of this I felt compelled. Now, Warren Wiersbe. People who are good at making excuses are rarely good at anything else. And those... And those who are quick to blame others shouldn't complain if others blame them. When God asked our first parents, what is it that you have done? Same thing. Invitation. Come clean. Let's get this thing fixed. What is this you have done? Neither of them, Adam or Eve, said, I have sinned. No, they made various excuses and they passed that nasty trait onto us. You remember what Eve said? Oh, whoa, what have I done? <laughs> the serpent <laughs> deceived me. You know, what could I do? And, and then Adam, Adam says, you know, it's the woman <laughs> you gave me. You know, I love that second part. Let's not forget, God, who gave who to whom. That would be you. And so we're doing that. We all do that. Now, imagine a different scenario with me, and I love to do things like this. Saul sees Samuel, and, and, and Saul is grieved. He opens his eyes. Amen. <gasps> oh, no. And he comes out, and he's weeping. And he says, I, I thought you weren't going to be here, but you are here. Oh, I've blown it again. Oh. Samuel, what should I do? Repent before the Lord. I can't believe I offered a burnt offering. My hands are covered in blood. Please help me. Show me the way back to God. Why? Why not? He said, what have you done? He could say, yeah, I don't know what I was thinking. It was stupid. But I own it. I did it. I'm always doing these kinds of things. May the Lord have mercy on my soul. You'd read a whole nother chapter. Things would have gone better for that guy. Had he just done that? And I just started thinking, Ananias and Sapphira. Here, they're sitting there. They feel the Holy Spirit. There's a look on Peter's face, and Peter says, seriously, that's what you sold your property for. It wasn't the problem that they kept part for themselves. It was that they sold this piece of property. They go into the church, and they said, hey, we sold our, our property. You all know we have this property. We sold it, and here's the money for the whole thing. They just wanted to look better than they would have looked, I guess, if they said, you know, we kept a little bit for ourselves. Peter said, so here's the question. What have you done? So you, this was the price? 
And Ananias says, yeah, it was. Boom, dead. Sapphira comes in. Says, now, 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 here's the invitation. Here's the invitation. There's always an invitation in every single Bible character scenario where they've really sinned and God's really going to bring down a paddle. There's always the invitation to get out of it. Sapphira, is this really the price that you guys got for that property that you're bringing now? And she says, yes, it is. Boom, the same guys that carried out her husband come in and carry her out. But there was that openness there. Judas, sitting there, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, somebody here is going to betray the Son of God. Judas is sitting there. Judas, it's your time. We could get another traitor. God can find somebody. Uh, but, but you have a way. You have a chance to get out of this whole thing. And we would read a different story about you. And then he says, is it I? And Jesus says, oh, it would be better for that man had he not been born. He says that while he's at the table. And then he says, is it I? And Jesus says there in Matthew 26, yes, it is. Is and any invitation, and and by the way, did you get the part where it would have been better if you hadn't never been born? <laughs> Nothing. He gets up, counts out the silver coins, and goes and does his thing. Pontius Pilate, Jesus, kind of saying, Pontius Pilate, this could be really a serious thing for you. The wife comes to him and says sends a message and says, I had a terrible, eerie nightmare about that guy. Get out of it. Opportunity, exit ramp. The Lord is saying, take the way out, man. And he doesn't. Everywhere you look, you will see not a God who can't wait to send the lightning bolt, but a God who wants to open a door of escape and give you the grace that you might find a way out. That's his heart. But there are people who don't want the way out. And so the paddle has to fall. Verse 13 and following, here comes the terrible rebuke and here comes the paddle, forecasted future consequences of this guy's continual disobedience. He says, you've acted foolishly. You haven't kept the command of the Lord that he gave you. He said, if you would have, he would have established your kingdom over, over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him as leader uh, because you've not kept the Lord's command. Now, it isn't just this one thing. It's two years of a guy who just won't cooperate with God, and he can't use him. So uh, now after two years, Saul hears, number one, you're fired or impeached. It's going to take him 20 years, but he's been served notice. He's got his pink slip. This is over. It's going to take 20 years for you to realize it and for me to remove you, but uh, it's now sealed. Uh, this could have worked well for you, uh, you forfeited the blessing through disobedience and your replacement's already chosen. 
There's the, there's the invitation. What do you hear from Saul? Nothing. If you would have said that to me as a pastor and listed all of those things as a leader, you've disobeyed for the last time. It's over. I'm done with this. Uh, somebody else is going to be raised up and you're out of here. I would have thrown myself on the floor in a blubbering, quivering mess of a gelatinous, no, I don't know how many different weird uh, adjectives I could find, but I would be on the floor, repenting and crying and begging and trying and pleading. Saul, nothing. Let's finish up. I do want to point out verse 14 is pretty important. He says, uh, I, the Lord is after a person who is after God's own heart in contrast to your heart. <laughs> That's not. David is a man after God's own heart and Saul is a man after Israel's heart. Who, what does it mean to have a heart for God? Because he's looking for that. Are you, a, are you a person who's after God's own heart? Uh, number one, it's someone who wants to carry out God's will more than their own. Number two, it would be someone who has a soft heart and a yielded spirit toward God. Number three, someone who wants to please God at any cost and see his cause established. And fourthly, I think it's someone who just loves people because God is all about loving people. It's somebody who shows mercy to people and shepherds people because that's who the Lord is. And it's not that David was perfect. It's that the overall bent of his heart and life was to honor God. The overall bent of this imperfect, sinful human being who is called a man after God's own heart who committed adultery and murder, he's still called a man after God's own heart because the bent of his heart was to honor the Lord 15 through the end, and we're done. Then Samuel left Gilgal, went up to Gebeah in Benjamin, and Saul counted the men who were with him. They numbered about 600. Uh, Saul and his son Jonathan and the men with them were staying in Gibeah in Benjamin while the Philistines camped at Michmash. Raiding parties in the Hebrew, that means the destroyers, went out from the Philistine camp in three deta detachments, one turned toward Oprah. <laughs> sorry, o Oprah. Oprah. Yeah. Sorry. Every time I see that, I think of Oprah. I don't know why. It's pretty close. In the vicinity of Shaal, Shual. Another toward Beth Horon, and the third toward the borderland overlooking the valley of Zeboim, <laughs> facing the desert. Just a funny little name, isn't it? Where do you live, Zeboim? <laughs> Verse 19, not a blacksmith could be found in the whole land of Israel because the Philistines had said, otherwise the Hebrews will make swords or spears. 
So all the all Israel had to go down to the Philistines to have their plowshares. Maddox are is a hoe. Uh, uh, like a garden hoe, axes and sickles sharpened. And so the price was two-thirds of a shekel for sharpening plowshares and a hoe, and a third of a shekel for sharpening forks and axes and for uh, repointing goads. Goads are the things you poke the oxen with to move them along. So on the day of the battle, not a soldier was salt. Uh, with Saul and Jonathan had a sword or a spear in his hand. Only Saul and his son Jonathan had them. <clears throat> Number four, then, against all odds. So verse 15, uh, 600 soldiers are against uh, the army here uh, uh, that resembled the, uh, the sand of the sea. So Israel's got 600 guys, uh, the Philistines, as far as the eye can see. Uh, too bad Saul has no faith. Because, uh, remember Gideon? Gideon had 300 guys and, and faced the same uh, sands of the sea kind of scenario with 300 guys, half of what he has. Uh, Gideon has less men but more faith. Jesus saying this, I tell you the truth, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. So reduced resources in God's hands yield great results for those who trust the matter to him. Verses 19 and through 21, not only are they outnumbered, but they're outgunned because of what the Philistines had done. They had created a monopoly on the whole blacksmith industry and because they were smart. They said, we're going to occupy these people and we're going to, first of all, deport all those blacksmiths. So uh, the Chaldeans did this later. You can find that in 2 Kings 24 and Jeremiah 24. They shipped them out. So there were no blacksmiths left. And so they had to go to the Philistines to sharpen their, their household tools, their kitchen utensils, and, and they would charge them exorbitant rates. And so, and, and not only that, they didn't do a very good job. You know why? Because they wanted them to come back and pay again. And number two, you could use some of those axes as weapons. And so it was just a really lose-lose situation for Israel. Verse 22 <clears throat> says that Jonathan and Saul managed to get one. Nobody really knows how, but they're the only two that had swords. And so finishing up, let's reflect, because it leaves you hanging here at the end of the chapter. And why it leaves you hanging, I think, is because we want to close out with understanding that a great deficit is really in God's economy a great opportunity for those who have faith. And so here we have a great invitation for Saul and Israel to trust and obey and see the salvation of Almighty God. Saul, the prophet's rebuke to you is an invitation to get right with God to change your heart. You know what? Even after God has pronounced the judgment, he's still breathing it, he, God is still merciful. Cry out, repent, trust and obey. Israel, the fact that you don't have any weapons 
and you're outnumbered is an invitation, an opportunity to trust God like your entire history has been teaching you for 500 years. So clearly your salvation will be credited not to the king, not to the army, and not to your weapons, but to the Lord your God. We, like Israel, needed to learn how to do God's math. Few soldiers plus no weapons plus God equals sure victory. Five loaves plus two fish plus God (laughs) equals a feast to satisfy 10,000 hungry stomachs. Two billion helpless Jewish slaves plus Moses and a shepherd's staff plus God Sure victory. And a a people who conquer, not only are they released from Egypt, but they conquer other people groups who are the Lord's enemies. And and they inherit what a blessing. And so trust and obey. That's the lesson of these chapters. Not perfection. Trust God and obey with all your heart. Because with God, all things are possible. Your visible resources are irrelevant. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for limited resources because oftentimes it's your doing. You allowed it that they didn't have weapons and you allowed that they would be outnumbered because you've got a plan to bring glory to yourself and to help them to see what God can do with a little faith and a little trust, and a little obedience. So, Father, may we take to heart these truths and trust you and obey and be blessed. In Christ's name, amen.